and welcome back to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Lamar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Akil, we've been telling our audience about the forthcoming release of your new book, The Words That Made Us, and I'm just going to take it upon myself to speak to our listeners directly here. I've read this book several times, in fact, and it's really an amazing work. It's the book of the year, as far as I'm concerned. And as much as I'm an admirer of Professor Amar's other books, especially America's Constitution and Biography, I believe that this one will be remembered as his masterwork. I've mentioned in the past that it's available for pre-order at Amazon.com. And today I was looking at their site and I saw that they have the look inside up on the page. And it includes the entire preface and first chapter. So I encourage you all to begin to read it and then to indulge yourself and pre-order it. You know, I was thinking about it, and there are at least 15 major points in this book that have never been made before or have been made repeatedly incorrectly. So get the words that made us and be smarter than everyone you know. Okay, well, let's turn to today's subject. So, you know, of course, Professor Marr is an expert on the Constitution in general, as you know, um, but today we're going to talk about a subject that he is unquestionably the expert on. Um, which is the filibuster. So why now? Well, um, of course, the Biden administration's in in full sprint. And after its initial um, bill through Congress, the uh, stimulus package, which was passed through a process called reconciliation, um, Congress is now considering bills that are less purely financial in nature, including notably the, a, a voting rights bill. And... So we read that, the, that this bill may have difficulty getting through the Senate because it can't achieve 60 votes. Um, and, of course, there's nothing in the Constitution about needing 60 votes. Um, so we, we are told that this is because of a, I suppose, a parliamentary tactic um, called the filibuster. So uh, what is a filibuster? Uh, well, the modern filibuster, the thing that we have today, is a feature of a Senate rule, Rule 22, uh, which I've um, in the past sometimes referred to as Catch-22. And um, many people think that Rule 22 says that um, in order to pass the Senate um, on, on a, a particular bill, um, you need 60 votes. Um, technically, Rule 22 doesn't say that. It's not a rule about, it's not a decision rule. It's not a rule about how many votes you need to pass a bill. It's instead um, a deliberation rule, a discussion rule, a rule about how many votes you need in order to bring the bill up for a final vote. And Rule 22 seems to say that for a whole bunch of measures, not certain budget measures, you referred to reconciliation, but for a whole bunch of measures, you need 60 votes if someone uh, insists, if a senator insists, you need 60 votes in order to bring the bill up for a final vote. So that's the modern filibuster. There have been earlier versions, and they've basically referred to various um, rules and customs by which a majority of the Senate uh, has managed uh, from time to time 
um, and we can talk about the, pa- the pattern over the years, but from time to time has prevented majorities, simple majorities, mere majorities in the Senate from working their will by just passing uh, a bill um, by the, the slimmest of majorities. Um, and uh, this um, idea of the filibuster has been for much of American history, more associated with the Senate than with the House. You don't really quite see House filibusters um, to the same extent that in American history we've we've seen Senate filibusters. The numbers have changed over time. Now it's 60. It had been two-thirds. Sometimes it had been, in effect, um, uh, two-thirds of the the uh, quorum, other times um, the denominator was of the, the actual total um, number of, of senators. Um, uh, there's a thing called a talking filibuster. In the new uh, version of it, that certain bills can be filibustered, and yet the Senate can, can, op- uh, can uh, deliberate on other bills under a sort of what's called a two-track system. So... It's all very complicated, and we're going to talk about some of the complexities. But in a nutshell, you're right, Andy. Because of the filibuster, um, a lot of bills, in order to clear the Senate as a practical matter, need 60 votes. And in the modern era, let's say the last 30 years, um, the filibuster has been used uh, uh, increasingly. And so a much higher percentage of bills get processed through the filibuster system, um, and as a practical matter, need 60 votes. Now, here's the final wrinkle. Okay. Um, So under Rule 22, you need 60 votes in order to bring a bill up to a final vote. And on that final vote, 51 suffices, or 50 plus the vice president. Okay. So if we can't get 60 votes to end debate on a bill... How many votes do we need to change Rule 22? Um, and my position has been, and now the Senate actually in the last decade has basically come around to my point of view, that at any time, on any day, actually Rule 22 can either be amended or reinterpreted by a simple majority vote. Um, and um, so... So the filibuster is no longer entrenched the way it used to be, and we call that non-entrenchment the nuclear option. There have been different versions of the nuclear option. Uh, the version that the Senate has recently adopted, first Harry Reid and, and then Mitch McConnell, um, uh, is a version in which even if Rule 22 stays in place, it can be modified, reinterpreted, scrapped by a simple majority vote, on any day, for any reason. And in fact, they've actually abridged the rule in the sense that it um, now that you don't filibuster judicial nominations, first it was judicial nominations except Supreme Court nominations. Yes, yeah. uh, judicial, maybe even an executive, but not Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And, and now, um, uh, uh, and that was um, Harry Reid in November of 2013. Um, and then uh, in the Gorsuch uh, confirmation process, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, a Republican, remember Harry Reid was a, 
Democratic Senate Majority Leader. Um, that was in 2013. The Democrats controlled the Senate. Well, Mitch McConnell, um, more recently in 2017. Uh, pushed through Gorsuch by extending the Reed precedent to Supreme Court nomination. So now each party has gone nuclear, um, and, and I'm for it. I, I, I'm um, uh, seen in certain circles as, as maybe like the Edward Teller or something of, of um, uh, the, the father of the nuclear option. The, 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 um, and, um, and what goes round comes round. So if the Democrats can do it in 2013... My position has always been, and was way before 2013, that the Republicans will be able to do it when they're in charge. Now, I'm sure some of our audience and listening to you have been thinking along with what you've been saying, and you say, well, you know, we have this rule, and um, it's only a majority to get rid of it, but the question I'm sure some of them are asking themselves is, what if someone wants to filibuster the attempt to change the rule? And that's where, once again, um, uh, if, as long as the chair is um, sympathetic um, uh, to uh, those who want to end debate, you can do it with a simple majority. And maybe even if the chair were opposed, you might be able to do it. That would be a little trickier. Um, but, th- yes, that's, that's the, 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 the um, nifty... Um, work around uh, so that uh, Rule 22 doesn't become a catch-22, because if you can't change Rule 22 by the ordinary rules of, of ordinary legislatures and indeed of, of, of most assemblies most time, if you can't change the uh, Rule 22 by a simple majority, it's entrenched. Suppose, for example, Rule 22 said not 60 but 99, um, and you couldn't change that unless 99 agreed. And how would you ever change that? Because there's always one or, you know, or two. I mean, there, there's, there's always a, a Rand Paul, a, um, a Ted Cruz. And so um, if at one crazy moment in history, the Senate had somehow agreed to something even higher than 60, is that going to be entrenched forever? And if not, um, you're going to need some workaround some folks, before I came along, said, oh, yeah, you can have a workaround. You can change the Senate, uh, re- reinterpret or modify Rule 22, but you can only do it on the first day of a new Senate every two years. And I came around and said, well, there actually isn't ever a first day of a new Senate. There's a first day of a new House. Um, the House um, is not a continuing body. One House of Representatives dies, and then on uh, two years later... Uh, and then on January 3rd of, of, of odd-numbered years, a new House of Representatives um, springs to life. It's like um, uh, Fox in um, Harry Potter. Fox is a phoenix, and, and the phoenix dies, and then uh, a, a new phoenix is, is hatched. Um, uh, and so the House does um, die every two years and is completely reborn in a new incarnation. That's not the way the Senate works. The Senate's a continuing body. Every two years, a third, typically, um, of, of the seats are uh, uh, come, uh, come up for election. Um, and there, it's always possible there are deaths and resignations, so it's even more than a third. But, but a third um, uh, come up just as a matter of routine. But the Senate doesn't 
turn over all at once. It's the same Senate in, in some sense. It's just with slightly new senators. That's not true of the House. So I came along and said, gee, I understand why the House has to adopt new rules on day one because it doesn't inherit the old ones. Um, so it has to kind of bootstrap itself into existence. But that's not true for the Senate. The old Senate majority leader or Senate pro tem, that person would c- kind of continue in place until ousted. And the rules continue in place until ousted. But just as a, a Senate on any day can uh, change its majority leader, can change its um, Senate president pro tem on any day, um, not just the first day, it can uh, change its rules of debate and procedure. Because there is no first day. There is no first day. Now, you said something earlier, which I think was important, which is that um, regarding cloture, that... uh, You haven't told them what cloture is. uh, The termination of debate, right, to bring something to a vote. To a close, yeah. Right, so that's that's really the filibuster rule, is the cloture rule, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rule 22. Mm -hmm. So... um, uh, that you you said that if 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 no senator objects to ending ending debate, so it's only if a, the debate will only be difficult to end if someone objects to ending it. So that means that the, you don't necessarily need sixty votes um, to terminate debate. Debate can just end. Um, so therefore, the threat of ending the filibuster, the threat of going nuclear. Um, can can have some value. So in other words, um, Chuck Schumer could say to Mitch McConnell, you know, you want the filibuster to remain for, you know, future uh, bills, but we we want we need this bill. We need this voting rights bill. And if you don't let it come to a vote, we're going to end the filibuster, and then it's going to come to a vote anyway. So is this a tactic that you believe is available to to Majority Leader Schumer? Yes, and you and I are dads, and we often talk about the fact that we're dads. Um, and uh, so if our kid, and our kids are now grown up, but, so, but, but, but in an earlier um, uh, stage of our lives, if the kid understands that at the end of the day we can make them do certain things, then maybe we actually initially just ask them nicely because if they're clever kids, they understand what the end game would be and then they work backwards from that, okay? Because if at the end of the day, dad's going to prevail, typically mom has to back dad, um, but but dad is going to prevail, then maybe um, dad doesn't have to actually use force uh, of of any sort, um, uh, but just can ask nicely. A political scientist, and I am a political scientist as well as a, a law professor, um, I refer to this as the law of anticipated response. You work your way backward from the last um, uh, inning, the last stage of, of a decisional process, and that has implications for what happens earlier. So let me read you um, what I wrote um, when Harry Reid... Um, adopted my um, theory and went nuclear in November of 2013. Today's vote to restore majority rule in the Senate is politically earth-shaking. 
the principle that a simple majority of truly determined senators may properly modify filibuster rules on any day, and not just on one magic day at the beginning of a new congressional term, has now been firmly established in actual Senate practice. And there's no going back. The nuclear genie is now out of the bottle. The filibuster reform vote today applies only to certain nominations. Supreme Court slots are not covered. But tomorrow, or any day thereafter, the Senate is free to sweep in the Supreme Court confirmation votes. And by the way, Mitch McConnell will do that later on, four years later. Or ordinary legislative votes, not just in reconciliation, but on anything else. Um, Or anything else. When the Republicans next control the Senate, and of course one day they will, they too will be free to insist on simple majority rule. What goes round comes round. The current Democratic majority would thus be wise to allow minority Republicans very broad, but not endless, freedom of speech as a matter of courtesy and comity. Everyone should get to speak, and then all should get to vote. If the Democrats govern the Senate with a kinder, gentler version of majority rule than do the House Republicans, today will rightly be seen by future Americans as one of the great days in the history of the Republic. Oh, and by the way, you heard it here first in Slate. The constitutional theory undergirding today's vote initially appeared way back in January 2011 in a piece that I wrote with former Senator Gary Hart. So that was a piece in which um, we put forth this um, version of the nuclear option. And since it's been done, that's the practice. So now Chuck Schumer can say to Mitch McConnell, listen, you went nuclear with Gorsuch, and Reed went nuclear before that, and if I have 50 votes plus, plus the vice president, I can go nuclear today. So, so, and, and that's undeniable, I think. Um, so um, now there's a question. Does Chuck Schumer have 50 votes plus the vice president? You know, if, if push comes to shove, will Joe Manchin you know, side with, with his party and, and Chuck Schumer? Um, and, 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 uh, but, um, uh, it's like that old joke, do you believe in infant baptism? And the fellow says, believe in it. Good God, man, I've seen it done. So because we've seen the nuclear option done twice, it is the, the or rule, the, the foundational rule from which everything else gets, um, reverse derived. Well, I think that Senator Manchin has been, um, uh, sort of playing the game as you as you pointed out, because he's originally his position was he's opposed to the filibuster. Then he said, "Well, maybe we can go back to the talking filibuster," and that puts some cards in uh, you know in Senator Schumer's hands to allow him to negotiate. Doesn't he hasn't actually committed to anything? Right. It's just like when uh, we like as parents, I think you and I both like to, in theory, operate from a position of strength. Don't make me do this. Don't make me send you to your room. Okay. <laughs> we both know that I can send you to your room, at least if mom agrees. And 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 mom in this uh, scenario would be Chuck. Uh, would be excuse me, jo- Joe Manchin. Okay. So the dad in this scenario is is. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the kid would be Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Schumer said, don't make me go nuclear. You know, we both know I can do it because Reed did it and you did it way back when. Don't make me do that. Let's let's work together. Um, But the the key is, is mom going to support dad? Is Joe Manchin going to support Chuck Schumer? And 
our audience might think these these analogies are kind of hokey, but but you and I often talk about sort of uh, uh, fam family um, uh, uh, metaphors. Well, human dynamics are human dynamics, and of course, you know McConnell is is evidence of this himself because he's he's trying to play what cards he has by saying, well, filibuster or no, you know the Senate is. Uh, an instrument of delay, and we, and if you try to do this, you will, you know, reap the whirlwind because I will employ every method of delay that you know, and everything will be slowed down to a crawl. Nothing will get done, you know, etc. And my friend Mitch uh, says, Chuck Schumer, my dear friend Mitch, my my colleague Mitch, what's true of Rule Twenty Two is true of every other rule. So you try to do that. Action begets reaction, and all of those other dilatory tactics that you might try to uh, employ could be changed with simple majority rule with Joe Manchin on my side tomorrow. Uh, so um, be careful, you know, what you wish for and, and, and what you threaten. And with due respect, uh, Senator McConnell, and I, by the way, actually quite admire Mitch McConnell. Um, um, and I've said so publicly in, in lots of, of fora. Um, um, I don't agree with him on everything, but, but I, I think he's a very substantial person. Um, uh, but uh, one thing that I would say is he, Senator Ben Sass, all sorts of other people are fundamentally wrong if they think that the key concept of the Senate is delay for its own sake rather than deliberation. And let's even, and that's a different concept. Yeah, um, just a moment ago, you you alluded to the notion that the the Democrats should allow the Republicans to have their say. Absolutely, but not, to have your say is not to have your delay. Everyone gets to speak, and then everyone gets to vote. That's you know a Mars world. That's the, my constitutional vision, uh, and um, and and we can even see it just in different kinds of filibusters. One kind of filibuster. Um, maybe it's Manchin's romanticized view of the talking filibuster is where a senator is really speaking to the point, actually trying to say, this is a big mistake. I, you know, before we do it, I want everyone in this chamber, everyone in this country to see, to see all the reasons why this is a real mistake. The same way, for example, that I, you know, in an earlier episode, I said, there are 18 different reasons why the Presidential Succession Act is a, is a mistake. Okay, that's a real talking filibuster that's about deliberation, making good faith arguments, trying to persuade people or at a minimum um, make a record for the reasons, uh, the principled reasons for one's opposition. That's different from... For example, reading out of the phone book, just names out of a phone book or um, uh, reciting poetry or something like that, whose only purpose is just to gum up the works, to delay for delay's sake, not frankly speaking on the merits of the bill at all. And in fact, the early Senate had rules that saying you're not, they, they actually said it's unparliamentary, it's improper to be, to speak in a dilatory fashion and not to the point. Is that rule still on the books? Um, there have been various revisions, so I, 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 if even if it is, it's not fully enforced. Um, let me actually try to see if I can find that quote. Mm -hmm. uh, so Thomas Jefferson was, of course, uh, the second vice president of the United States uh, from 1797 to 1801, and 
therefore was the Senate's presiding officer. Uh, and in that context, he himself composed uh, the very famous 1801 Manual of Parliamentary Practice for the Use of the Senate of the United States. Um, here's a direct quote from Thomas Jefferson about how the Senate is supposed to operate. Quote, No one is to speak impertinently or beside the question, superfluously or tediously. The voice of the majority decides. For the lex majoris partis, that is Latin for majority rule, the law of majority rule, is the law of all councils, elections, etc., were not otherwise expressly provided, unquote. Oh, it's pretty unambiguous in terms of the rule of, uh, of the majority. The original intent, so to speak. Yes, indeed. Um, and I think that brings up several points. First of all, the filibuster is not a constitutional requirement. Um, second of all, it's not even a senatorial requirement. Um, nevertheless, if one were to ask Joe Manchin, why is it that you are not ready to get rid of the filibuster, um, he might reply something to the effect of, uh, it preserves the, the nature of the Senate, the tradition of the Senate as a great uh, a deliberative body, um, and so forth. Um, so I guess we, sh we should examine that claim. So first of all, the questions would be, does does it, in fact, promote the Senate as a deliberative body, uh, first of all? Second of all, um, what was the original notion of the Senate? What did the Federalists, the Federalist Papers, what did the founders think the Senate should, Senate's role was in this sense? Um, and then third of all, if the filibuster indeed came about as an attempt to preserve the Senate of a, as a deliberative body, how was it used? Did it actually serve that function? Great. So that's going to take us a while to work through. So let's just try to go through it deliberatively, carefully, um, but, but, but not delayingly uh, in a dilatory fashion for delay's sake. And yes, I'm not going to read the phone book for our <laughs> listeners. Um, and indeed, um, uh, uh, the, the delay is one thing. Um, even if, even if the, 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 see, the, you just read the phone book just to give people time to, to think, to, to collect themselves, but that's different than infinite delay. That's different from blocking a vote from ever taking place. So I said it's really about deliberation, but even if you pushed me back to delay for its own sake, it would be delay for a period, and then we vote and the majority decides. Everyone gets his say, and then everyone gets to vote. That's the idea. So let me first give you the pre-constitutional vision. Uh, before the Constitution's even adopted, what's the general background understanding in America? So let me begin uh, with John Locke's canonical Second Treatise of Government. And Locke, of course, is a very influential um, uh, his theory of revolution behind, and his theory of government really underlying behind uh, Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Here's what Locke says. Um, he understands, and, and parts of Locke are, are almost mathematical. It's the same world that's generating Locke on the one hand and, and let's say, um, 
uh, Newton on, on the other. And he understood that majority rule was the natural default principle of all assemblies. By default, I mean unless otherwise specified. Here's the quote from Locke. In assemblies empowered to act by positive laws, where no number is set by that positive law which empowers them, the act of the majority passes for the act of the whole and, of course, determines as having by the law of nature and reason the power of the whole. Okay, so that's Locke. Um, Well, in America, who would be the most... Um, sort of philosophically um, inclined founders. Again, this is all before the Constitution. And I think if you just asked some woman in the street uh, today, she might say, oh, Ben Franklin, maybe Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson. So as it turns out, um, we know what Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson thought. Here's Thomas Jefferson from a mid-1780s booklet Notes on the State of Virginia, which, by the way, was the only, thing, the only book that Thomas Jefferson ever published uh, in his life. And he declared that, quote, Lex Majoris Partis, that is majority, the law of majority rule, is founded in common law as well as common right. It is the natural law of every assembly of men whose numbers are not fixed by any other law, unquote. And in that, you can hear echoes of, of Locke Um, because he's read Locke, just as you can hear echoes of Locke in the Declaration of Independence. A long train of abuses, for example, is a phrase in the Declaration lifted directly from Locke, as is his theory of justifiable revolution when the government ceases to protect its um, subjects and instead becomes tyrannical. So Jefferson's a total Lockean on this all the way down the line. Now here is what Benjamin Franklin says at the Philadelphia Convention, which uh, drafts the Constitution, of course, uh, Jefferson at this point, at that point was often in Paris. And Franklin described majority rule as, quote, the common practice of assemblies in all countries and ages, unquote. None of his fellow delegates is recorded as contradicting him on this point. So that's the pre-constitutional background. Uh, Now uh, let's talk about the Constitution's text itself. And I think the most interesting thing about the text is, um, as it were, the dog that doesn't bark. Um, Majority rule goes without saying. It's the rule that applies everywhere in the Constitution, everywhere, unless otherwise specified or overwhelming explicitly or overwhelmingly clear from a structure, history, and context. So when it comes, what do you need, for example, to um, launch the Constitution? Well, Article 7 says you need nine states. Um, But it doesn't tell you what the vote needs to be within each state. Mm -hmm. And it co- but it goes without saying that simple majority rule, and it was simple majority rule, and you and I actually, from our pre- from previous conversations um, we've had offline, know that actually in New York, the Constitution basically passed in the New York Ratifying Convention by a single vote. It's 30 to 27, but for complicated reasons. Well, here's the reason. If one person switched, it would have been 29 to 28, and the chair would have cast not a tie-breaking, but a tie-making vote, and the chair was opposed to it, and so the motion to adopt the Constitution would have failed 29 to 29. So Constitution passes in all-important New York by 
And the headline would have been uh, Harvard defeats Yale 29-29. <laughs> this is a, a inside uh, joke for uh, the Yaleys in, in the audience. It's about the, the game between Harvard and Yale in 1969 with uh, Brian Dowling and, and Calvin Hill, BD for, for Doonesbury fans. And so. Al Gore and, uh, and uh, his friend, uh, the actor... Um, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones, yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones was, was on the football he team? He was on the field, and uh, yeah. I think Al Gore was a yeah. Yeah. cheerleader oh, or something. Okay, but we digress. <laughs> um, okay, to repeat, um, in all-important New York, the Constitution is ratified by a single vote, by the, si- the narrowest of, of majority, simple majority, and yet... Constitution doesn't specify that. It went without saying. It was overwhelmingly clear. No one who lost said, oh, that's not good enough. Wow. Okay, so that's Article 7, how the Constitution was, in fact, adopted. Now let's look at Article 5, how the Constitution is to be amended. And Article 5 says, oh, as a general proposition, you need two-thirds of the House two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the states. Now, none of those are majority rule, and that's why they need to be specified. And obviously, it should be harder to adopt an amendment to the Constitution than an ordinary law. So, um, but what do you need to adopt an ordinary law? Well, the Constitution doesn't say, but it obviously has to be lower than two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate, but it doesn't say what. But the answer, again, is just sort of obvious by default, you know, without... Um, uh, if it's not otherwise specified, it's simple majority rule in the House and the Senate. Um, there are other provisions of the Constitution. For example, it said, oh, for a treaty you need two-thirds, but that's um, but again, that needs to be specified, two-thirds of the Senate, and it needs to be specified, or it is specified as two-thirds, rather, in part because you don't have bicameralism, because um, you don't have the usual deliberative mechanisms of House and Senate, so if it's only the Senate, maybe you need two-thirds. When each House um, is empowered to expel a member of that House for misbehavior, again, it's unicameralism. The House expels House members who are disorderly or deserve expulsion, and the Senate can expel Senate members, so you don't have bicameralism, so one, and, and it's a pretty serious thing to um, uh, expel someone, undoing the, the vote voters or the state legislators who, who put that House member or senator um, uh, in uh, uh, their position of public trust. So that's a pretty serious thing, so it needs to be two-thirds, and two-thirds is specified. Um, when it comes, for example, to advice and consent, um, not for a treaty, but for a cabinet officer or a judge or a justice, doesn't say two-thirds, so what does it have to be? Well, it's not specified, but the practice from day one has been simple majority vote. Let's take, for example, uh, the judiciary. Um, there are nine justices. The Constitution doesn't say explicitly that majorities rule on the court, but of course they do. It's not specified otherwise. No one ever has thought as a general proposition when it's 5-4, the four um, prevail. Now, there are certain... Certiorari, right? Doesn't require majority. Certain minority rules on the court, but now let me pull a Rule 22-like point. All of those rules exist in the shadow of a um, majority rule for what those rules are in the first place. A, a majority could change 
five justices out of nine could change the so-called rule of four. You see, just as under the nuclear option, a majority of the Senate at any time can change its rules of procedure. And let's talk about those rules of procedure. Article 1 says each house gets to adopt rules of procedure, but doesn't tell us by what vote, um, but it's obviously by majority vote. And, and when the first Congress convenes, each house is jump-starting itself, and they follow simple majority rule at the beginning. And if they didn't, there would be an infinite regress problem because by what voting rule do you even decide what voting rules you're going to use to decide the voting rule um, uh, or the procedures? So um, but, uh, each house, on day one of the, uh, the Constitution's operation in 1789, March 1789, adopted rules of procedure by simple majority vote. And, and if that was good enough on day one for the House and the Senate, that's good enough on any future day for any future House or Senate. Um, uh, so we've been now talking about the Constitution's text, what it says and what it doesn't say, um, and uh, the early implementing uh, understandings uh, how the Constitution was itself ratified in each state by majority rule, um, how each house set up itself with its procedures by simple majority rule. Um, I skipped over just a bit what the Federalist Papers have to say on, on all this, and they do say some interesting things because, of course, the general rule for the Articles of Confederation were that certain really important issues had to be decided by nine states, and actually, out of 13, and actually, the Federalist Papers say is, says, that's a mistake, that supermajority requirement in general, because, um, in effect, it leads to gridlock and minority rule, and you really should have simple majority rule. So, actually, let me, so that it was very purposeful to move away from the supermajority requirement of nine states for important um, pieces of legislation in the Articles, to the Constitution where it was simple majority for ordinary legislation, um, but bicamerally. So instead of nine, uh, supermajority within one chamber, Articles Confederation, simple majorities in two chambers, plus, of course, uh, the, the, the president's involvement. And if the president vetoes a bill, it again specifies, oh, you need a supermajority to override. Uh, one, Still further evidence that whenever supermajorities are in any way um, called for, the text itself so provides. But let me read you what Alexander Hamilton wrote in the Federalist Papers about um, majority rule versus minority rule. And I'm going to read these things to you because thoughtful, intelligent, presumably well-educated senators like Ben Sass who has a degree from, an, a graduate degree from Yale, are saying stuff about the original vision of the Senate and all the rest that just aren't so. And of course, we know that uh, you know, the, the articles kind of did themselves in um, by their inaction. Um, this was one of the reasons the Constitution was drafted in the first place, was to address this, this fault in the, in the articles not just on this particular clause, but in general. Exactly so, and uh, uh, cue the tape, as <laughs> they say in the business. 
Uh, so this is Alexander Hamilton in The Federalist number 22. Quote, To give a minority a negative, that is a veto, upon the majority, which is always the case where more than a majority is requisite to a decision, is, in its tendency, to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the lesser. This is one of those refinements which, in practice, has the effect the reverse of what is expected from it in theory. The necessity of unanimity in public bodies, or of something approaching toward it, has been founded upon a supposition that it would contribute to security. But its real operation is to embarrass the administration, to destroy the energy of the government, and to substitute the pleasure, caprice, or artifices of an insignificant, turbulent, or corrupt junto to the regular deliberations and decisions of a respectable majority. In those emergencies of a nation in which the goodness or badness, the weakness or strength of its government is of the greatest importance, there is commonly a necessity for action. The public business must, in some way or other, go forward. If a pertinacious minority can control the opinion of a majority respecting the best mode of conducting it, the majority, in order that something may be done, must conform to the views of the minority, and thus the sense of the smaller number will overrule that of the greater and give a tone to the national proceedings. Hence, tedious delays, continual negotiation and intrigue, contemptible compromises of the public good. And yet, in such a system, it is even happy when such compromises can take place, for upon some occasions, things will not admit of accommodation, and then the measures of government must be injuriously suspended or fatally defeated. It is often, by the impracticability of obtaining the concurrence of the necessary number of votes, kept in a state of inaction. Its situation must always savor of weakness, sometimes border upon anarchy. Unquote. That describes the gridlock of modern America in the last 20 or 30 years or so when the entrenched filibuster has become, as a practical matter, the rule of decision, not merely a rule of deliberation, but the actual rule of decision for most important pieces of legislation. You need to get to 60, and you can't, and nothing gets done, and that's gridlock, and that's just bordering upon anarchy sometimes, um, when things need to be done and aren't, and that's just what Hamilton is describing, and he's saying the Constitution was intentionally designed to move away from that, repeat. The article said nine out of 13 in one chamber. The Constitution says simple majority rule in each of two chambers. That's going to be a different model and a better one, says Hamilton. So the protection then came um, against uh, overaction on the part of the government came from bicameralism. That is the fact that you had to pass by majority in both the Senate and the House and presentment, which means that you had to give it to the president for his signature or veto, and then could be overridden by by the by the Congress. Exactly so. So and just like Constitution Rock, which you and I grew up with, you know, I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. You know, that's yes, how they drew it up. Um, uh, with all due respect, Senator Sass, I'm I'm I, I'm looking at you. But somehow or other, the filibuster came to be. Indeed. 
Um, and here's what I want to say about that. It was not at all um, in the founding text. It was not at all in the uh, initial founding practices, ratifying the Constitution by the simplest of majorities in, in New York, um, launching um, each house uh, with rules of procedure that passed by simple majorities of the quorum, um, and passing bill after bill after bill in the usual simple majoritarian way. Um, uh, and, uh, but I want to, uh, at, the, at the very beginning, but I want to say that really prior to the Civil War, there was almost no bill or action that I know of that um, was filibustered to death, talked to death. Um, the Senate was smaller, people got to talk, um, a long t- um, and, and, and talk and talk. Um, it was a famously deliberative body, but there was less business to transact, and so my basic principle was observed. Um, everyone gets to talk, and then everyone gets to vote. Uh, and once again, I think the easiest way I can prove that is to invite my audience to think about the dog that didn't bark. If there was a famous filibuster in American history before the Civil War, we should know about it. What's this, uh, what, name it. Um, on Wikipedia, uh, when you look up filibuster, it said that there was a, a, f- a filibuster only in the Senate uh, uh, of an attempt to uh, eliminate the censure of Andrew Jackson. But, of course, a couple of things. One, even if that were true, it would only be a, a unique Senate action uh, w- um, without bicameralism, so that, that would make it quite distinguishable. But, of course, it's not true because in 1837, the very year that Wikipedia is pointing to, the censure of Andrew Jackson was, in fact, undone. So it might have been that the, the Whig senators were trying to delay it and talk it to death or something, but that didn't happen. So, to repeat, if there was some important bill that was actually filibustered to death, um, please name it. Point one. Point two. Our audience, which is a very sophisticated audience, thank you, folks, we're really lucky to have you out there, um, know that the Compromise of 1850 was a very big deal and had different elements to it, but one of its elements, one of the most important aspects of the Compromise of 1850 was admitting California as a free state without the admission of any offsetting slave state. That gave the free states the barest of majorities in the Senate. They, um, until then, the Senate had been basically equally balanced between free and slave, slave states. So in 1820, um, Maine comes in, for example, as a free state, but it's balanced against Missouri as a slave state. Compromise of 1850 breaks that balance. It gives the free states one more state in the Senate than the slave states two more senators, one more state. And that mattered hugely. That was a very big deal precisely because the rule of the Senate was simple majority rule. It wasn't 60% or two-thirds or whatever. That's why the Compromise of 1850 uh, and and the California aspect of it in particular was such a big deal. So we don't have any filibuster, entrenched filibuster of any significant sort I'm claiming 
uh, in the entire founding period all the way up to the Civil War. And, and, if, and if there is such a practice, um, boy, David Mayhew doesn't know about it, and he's Mr. Congress, uh, the great um, uh, emeritus professor at Yale, a preeminent scholar of Congress, along with Norm Ornstein. I would say that those were probably the, the two most preeminent uh, students of Congress. And David Mayhew says there's uh, in, in, in his scholarship that, that he knows of no such important filibuster. Now, after the Civil War, we begin to see a certain practice creeping in. And we're going to hear on that um, from uh, my great colleague, I hope we're going to hear from that, my uh, great colleague, John Witt. Um, who has a piece recently actually in the Washington Post talking about how the filibuster began to creep into American practice after the Civil War, and it has a disgraceful history. It's used by um, Southern opponents of civil rights laws, laws that tried to protect voting in the 1890s, that tried to prohibit lynching in the 1920s, that tried to affirm other civil rights, um, those and other um, important rights in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and early 1960s. So um, when we get, uh, we're going to hear from John Witt, and, um, and he's going to fill in that middle period of history um, for us, because truthfully, I know that period less well than does he. Okay, well, I have good news for you. We do, in fact, have John Witt with us. Uh, here's a little background for you on Professor Witt. John Fabian Witt is the Alan H. Duffy, class of 1960 professor of law at the Yale Law School. He's the author of a number of books, including one of my favorites, uh, Lincoln's Code, The Laws of War in American History. Um, it's not just my favorite. It was awarded the Bancroft Prize, was a finalist for the Pulitzer, was selected for the American Bar Association's Civil, Silver Gavel Award, and was a New York Times notable book. More recently, he wrote the uh, timely American Contagions, Epidemics, and the Law from Smallpox to COVID-19. He's currently writing the story of the men and women behind the Garland Fund, which was the 1920s foundation that quietly financed the efforts that culminated in Brown versus Board of Education. So as you will see, he is an expert indeed on this period. In addition to these and several other books, he's written scholarly articles for the American Historical Review, Columbia Law Review, Harvard Law Review, Yale Law Journal, and others. Um, our audience may have encountered his writings in the New Republic, the New York Times, Slate, the Wall Street Journal, and recently uh, in the Washington Post. He's been a uh, Guggenheim Fellow. He's a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Professor Witt holds a JD from the Yale Law School and a PhD in history from Yale. He's the current head of Yale's Davenport College, and he's taught in Everscholar model courses together with Professor Amar. Thank you again to our sponsor, Everscholar. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor John Fabian Witt to America's Constitution. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's really a pl pleasure to be here. Thank you. So. We're going to be talking uh, about some more about the filibuster here. Um, we've been discussing the the founding period on the podcast up till now, when the filibuster really was not part of the legislative landscape. Um, but many people have been taught that the filibuster had been used exclusively or primarily to halt the 
uh, major civil rights bills in the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 1960s. But you've been a leader in bringing some important history of this tactic to, to our attention. Uh, can you tell us about uh, some developments in the 1920s and beyond, uh, specifically the, the fascinating story of, of the Dyer Bill? And we've been particularly interested in how uh, this might shed light on the argument that uh, defenders of the filibuster have made, namely that it's been an important means, supposedly, of preventing a, a tyranny of the majority or that it's enabled the finer traditions of the Senate as a, a great deliberative body. So um, can you tell us about that? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to, Andy. The, the, um, you know, the, the story really begins, I think, the modern story in 1917 when um, uh, uh, isolationists in the Senate uh, try to block Wilson's preparedness efforts uh, uh, to, uh, in advance of, um, of U.S. entry into World War I. And what the, what the Senate does is create the modern filibuster, which is producing a procedure called the cloture motion, which allows the Senate to bring an end to a filibuster in the event of a supermajority of the Senate uh, uh, calling for for that end. And in 1917, the Senate says two thirds, two thirds of the Senate can bring an end to a uh, to a filibuster. And 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 to my mind, and in particular to the mind of my, my co-author Magdalene Magdalene Zier at uh, at Stanford and I, the first great instance of this modern filibuster comes just a few years later, uh, in 1922 and 1923, when the U.S. Congress takes up. Uh, the, the, the Dyer anti-lynching bill, named after a, a Congressman Dyer from Missouri. Uh, and um, uh, that anti-lynching bill would have put the federal government's heft behind the effort to stop um, uh, racial pogroms and lynchings uh, in the American South and, and elsewhere. And the bill passes the House uh, in December of 1922. This is a moment you know, after the election of, of Warren Harding, in which Republicans with its, its important black constituency, the party of Lincoln controls uh, 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 both, both elected branches of government, the White House and the Congress. And so the House passes the anti-lynching bill in December 22, uh, and, and, then, and then the action moves to the Senate, uh, where it where it fails, uh, and it fails in in significant part because because of uh, because of the filibuster and the inability of uh, of Republicans either by numbers or will to uh, to overcome that um, to overcome that filibuster. Now you pointed out that in that in the Dyer bill, although the Democrats did fil filibuster it, that the Republicans, I mean, this is still somewhat the old Republican Party, you know, actually had you know tepid support for the bill, actually you know, electorally oriented support for the bill. They wanted to be seen as supporting it um, for the uh, the black vote, um, but they were happy to see it die. Um, um, do you think that there's uh, any analog to this in the positions uh, today of, let's say, moderate Democrats like Senators Manchin and, and Cinema? I mean, you know, might we interpret, you know, their filibuster wariness as actually trying to avoid voting on certain bills? And if so, is this another argument against this supposed justification for the filibuster? Well, it's it's, uh, it's for sure the case that the filibuster is a tool that um, uh, politicians can use, another uh, uh, arrow in their quiver um, uh, that, that, that gives them uh, room to maneuver as they navigate complicated electoral landscapes. 
uh, you know, I think I, I think I, I, so I got it a little bit wrong in my, my first, in, in the way I presented it there, that the, the Dyer bill, and this is crucial to understanding it, the Dyer bill passes the House in January 22, and it's the Senate's failure to overcome the filibuster that comes in December of 22. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and that's really crucial because what's happened in between the two is the midterm elections. And so this is the, now you can uh, you can see uh, your listeners will see instantly how this plays into the narrative you just offered, which is to say that one way of thinking about this is that the Republican Party was able to manage its black constituency across that crucial midterm election to keep them involved and engaged uh, um, until after the midterm when the steam. Um, uh, when the steam for the for, for, for the bill had, uh, had had run out, so that that ability to play politics with a filibuster is such an old story, and one can be sure it's uh, going on in, in ways now. You give some some reference to the uh, the failed uh, civil rights bill in the in the eighteen nineties. Um, could you say something about that? Well, well the um, uh, you, there had been components of the Republican Party uh, from from the Civil War period forward, pushing for more aggressive forms of civil rights legislation, voter protection, uh, anti-lynching uh, measures um, uh, than, than, than Congress was willing to go along with. So, so the, the story of Republicans aiming for and failing to get uh, civil rights legislation, you know, goes, goes as, as, as far back as the Republican Party. Um, I, you know, the filibuster is is one of a number of mechanisms that um, you know critics of legislative efforts can deploy to um, uh, to get their way and to uh, uh, and to, to 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 block legislation like that. I mean, you might think of the filibuster as something that allows regional outliers to remain regional outliers by preventing the federal government from uh, overriding those um, uh, those regional differences. Uh, and, and so I think if you think of it that way, then you can instantly see why it would be, uh, uh, especially pre-Great Migration, uh, but 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 later too, uh, why it would be that um, the filibuster would be such a a, um, a special problem for for civil rights legislation. That's a fascinating point that it can be really a regional tool, and I think we saw that in in its purest form. Um, with the anti-lynching bill last year when Rand Paul became his own region. Um, and mm-hmm. So, you know, the, so, so there's a kind of a noxious history here to the filibuster. Um, you know, it's used in these, you know, somewhat indefensible battles. Um, but does that really indict its existence now? In other words, um, you know, the Democratic Party we see was kind of the anti-civil rights party, but now that's not the case. So that, you know, even though, you know, it could represent, you know, a, a uh, something we might, you know, be opposed to at some point, um, it still could be a tool for, for good in the right hands, theoretically. I mean, is there something about the filibuster, this, you pointed out this regional uh, aspect of it, um, that, that causes it to be particularly a tool for, for noxious causes? Uh, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think it's um, uh, the the nothing inherently noxious about the the um, the the filibuster. What's what's inherent about the filibuster 
is its anti-democratic capacity, its anti-democratic features, its anti-majoritarian features at the national level, right? It, it cuts off a certain kind of majoritarian politics at the national central level, um, uh, which has the effect of empowering regional outliers. Now, those regional outliers might be good or bad from your perspective, uh, um, uh, but those regional outliers are empowered by um, by the filibuster. It's been, I suppose, a contingent fact of American history, although a central contingent fact, that um, you know one of our most important regional outliers has been a noxious form of uh, of white of white supremacy. Uh, but it's not inherent. It, it arises out of that out of that out of that mix. If that makes sense. How fascinating that. Uh that you were echoing the words of Alexander Hamilton that we referred to earlier um, when discussing the, the notion of majoritarian rule. Well, thank you very much, John Fabian Witt, and uh, we hope to have you on uh, America's Constitution again. Look forward to it. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, pal. See you later, Akil. See you later, Andy. Okay, thanks, John. Well, but going back to the earlier period just for a moment, I think... Uh, you know, the, the argument that the filibuster is necessary because um, the Senate uh, requires it to serve its deliberative function somehow um, is, to me, contradicted because if you were to say, what was the greatest period of debate in the Senate's history? Most people that study history would say the period in the, in the mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s when you had the great triumvirate of Calhoun, Webster, and Clay, whether or not, I mean, not saying that Calhoun was great, but the triumvirate as a whole was, mm -hmm. was great in their, in their rising, rousing oratory and so forth. And no filibusters were necessary to have this, this great uh, period of deliberation. They were debating to the point rather than reading phone books as a general proposition. Um, and after everyone got to speak, everyone got to vote. Indeed. So I think it's, it's somewhat belied by that. But if you go back to a little bit more of a, uh, let's say, a foundational level, um, yes, the constitutional history is consistent, as you said, with the notion of majority voting in the Senate and the House as being decisive. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's the, the best way to, to maintain uh, a balance. Or then the Senate may, in fact... Uh, be different from the House in some fundamental way that um, that majority voting would discourage, even though it was the rule, may not be the best rule. So, um, and the, if one were to make that argument, uh, if we look at the country today, we might say, well, you know, the Democrats are talking about passing, you know, trillions of dollars in, in stimulus, trillions of dollars in infrastructure, and I understand that this can bypass the filibuster, but nevertheless, it's part of the of the spectrum of, of proposition that, that they, uh, lies before us. Um, there's a, a landmark Voting Rights Act uh, that's, that's out there. And no doubt, um, if the Democrats were, had their way, they would pass other important bills. Perhaps we would see statehood for District of Columbia and, and Puerto Rico and, and so forth. So, um, but at the same time, most people would say that the country is divided. There is no real unanimity in the nation. Um, you know, the Democrats—it's 50-50 in the Senate. You know, the the Democrats lost a bunch of votes in the in the House at the last election. Um, uh, Joe Biden won a substantial victory. It's true, but 
um, could easily have gone the other way if you look at, at uh, you know, some decisive states. So if the country is narrowly divided, should we have momentous change at a time when the, when the country is narrowly divided? That would be an argument that, the, that when, unless we have a substantial level of bipartisanship or one party has a decisive uh, mandate from the populace, that we should not have dis have monumental change, and that and that is the function that the filibuster serves by slowing the Senate down, requiring one of those things to happen. Uh, I'm not saying that I believe this, but that I think would be an argument. So um, I believe you have a, a a very interesting response to that argument. It's a, and it's a great challenge, and and thanks for putting it so crisply and forcefully. I think I have two responses. One is about the Senate and what is distinctive about it, um, regardless of the filibuster. And the second is about the country today. So filibuster or no filibuster, the Senate will always be different from the House in ways that I think uh, um, conduce to better deliberation. It's smaller. Um, uh, it's, it doesn't turn over all at once. It turns over more gradually. Um, which uh, facilitates, I think, a certain kind of um, uh, collegiality, uh, uh, one hopes, uh, um, among its members. It tends to be, today, um, particularly responsive to swing states. I think there are a higher percentage of swing states in the Senate than there are swing congressional districts in the House. So you're going to have more senators in the middle, um, more uh, purple state senators than purple district House members. And those are all things that I think bode well for um, deliberation, courtesy, um, what goes around comes around uh, because um, someone in the ma man majority today may recognize that she or he will be in the minority in the future. Um, uh, so, so that's a point about the, the, the Senate today. Um, and some of those points are about the Senate of throughout history. It, it's smaller and uh, six years and, and serves longer and, and turns over very gradually. Uh, the point about the country that I'd like to make is um, uh, that there's an asymmetry between the two parties. Um, when the Republicans control, have the trifecta, they control the House, the Senate, and the presidency, which they did, for example, at the beginning of uh, the Trump administration, even then, they actually didn't um, have a, a popular mandate. More people had voted against Trump than had voted for Trump. Uh, and um, if, you, if you add not just the House, the Senate, and the presidency, but you add the American people into the equation, yes, America is divided, but on the other hand, Democrats have won popular majorities in seven of the last eight presidential elections. And that seems notable. Uh, and they do face, so when they manage to get the trifecta, you know, despite actually um, certain disadvantages that they face actually in the House, the Senate, and the presidency, 
that's pretty substantial. And what are those disadvantages? Well, in the last 20 years, the Electoral College, uh, for various reasons, has tended to give the Republicans an edge. That might not be true 20 years from now. I don't think it was true 40 years ago. Um, but nowadays, Democrats basically, according to people like Nate Silver, have to win by about three or four points nationally in order to um, confidently um, uh, 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 prevail in the Electoral College. So they're, they're, the Democrats face a three-point or four-point disadvantage in um, the presidential contest. So um, uh, Biden won by, what, four points or so, but he narrowly squeaked by in the, the swing electoral college states like uh, uh, Georgia and Wisconsin and uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona. The Senate also today um, tilts red. Uh, Democrats basically need to um, have about a 53 or 54 point national lead in order to um, reliably control the Senate. Now that might change. If D.C. came in as a state or Puerto Rico comes in as a state, but right now the Democrats actually have certain structural disadvantages in the Senate and in the House it's arguably worse. Um, uh, in the House, actually, um, uh, Barack Obama uh, won pretty decisively in 2012 nationally but only carried about 190 uh, House districts, 280. 18 would be a majority. So he went, he beats Mitt Romney by four or five points nationally and doesn't come close to even carrying a majority of House districts. And that's because lots of Democrats say it's because of gerrymandering. I think it's more because of geographic clustering. In a nutshell, Democrats are winning overwhelmingly in certain cities. Um, and so th in certain congressional districts that are city districts, the Democrats are winning 80-20. Um, and they're losing other um, uh, districts, um, rural districts and even some suburban districts, um, but they're not losing 80-20, they're losing 60-40. And if you do the math, that means they're wasting more votes. Um, they're winning um, nationally, they're winning, let's say, even in, in a state like Pennsylvania, but a lot of their votes are concentrated in a few places. And so with single-member districts, Democrats face... a a structural disadvantage in the House. That's not true just in the United States. It's, it's true of uh, urban parties in other uh, major democracies, Britain and, and New Zealand, for example. So at this particular moment, actually, um, uh, although it seems like the Democrats have the narrowest of, of margins in the, the Senate, Kamala Harris, 50-50, tiny, teeny, tiny margin in, in the House, just barely, you know, one in the key electoral college states. In fact, um, that's despite all these structural disadvantages. So when, th and to repeat, they've won seven of the last eight uh, presidential elections by the popular vote. And remember the Senate, because it doesn't turn over all at once. If you're winning the Senate, that means you're winning in several different election cycles, or at least coming close. Um, Final point, some of the things that the Democrats are trying to do by the narrowest of majorities, because they have the trifecta, the House, the Senate, and the presidency, are actually pro-democracy measures. They're actually not trying to disfranchise people the way the, the Georgia legislature is trying to do. They're trying to pass 
laws protecting the right to vote or bringing new folks into the system, D.C. that's been unfairly excluded, one might argue, or, or Puerto Rico. So not only do they have actually a democratic, um, if not mandate, at, at least um, a, a uh, a real democratic um, margin of victory, not only to have a real margin of victory, but they're trying actually to pass laws with their s- narrow House s- and Senate majorities that will actually protect democracy going forward. Yeah, I think if you, if you saw Republican efforts to you know, improve enfranchisement, that would be one thing. But you know, in through, I I can't think of one state in the union where that's where that's happening. Um, so it is it is. Uh, there you know, are it, there are states. There's at least one state I think where Democrats in the majority have gerrymandered in um, uh, slightly stinky ways. Uh, I would say that that I think has happened in Maryland. Um, but but Republicans have have tried to gerrymander in stinky ways in in many more states. Truthfully, if we just added them um, all up. Um, um, so, um, uh, but but so what you're you- saying then is that the is that the margin that the Democrats have in, in the various branches, um, and for that matter in the White House, is actually well earned. It's not really as narrow a margin as it appears, and that therefore there is more of a mandate uh, of, of the country. Um, and also, I think some people say, well, you know, four percent—that's a very small. You know, margin. You know, that, how can that be a mandate? You know, four percent, such a little. But um, you know, historically, that isn't that small. You know, if you if you look at uh, you know presidential margins of victories over centuries, they tend to be relatively small. And, uh, and once again, it's not merely um, uh, a margin in one branch. It's in the House and in the Senate. And in the presidency, these are picked in different ways, two years, four years, six years, districts, states, the Electoral College. So when you win in all three, and it's backed by this fourth idea of a popular majority, and not once, not twice, but seven out of the last eight years, I think that might that is responsive to the, the concern that you raised. And, and Hamilton gave you the other argument. Um, uh, um, Merely because there are some who oppose something, does that mean that we should do nothing? Um, because if you don't have rule by majority, you're going to have rule by the minority as a practical matter. Well, and I think it, it couldn't be more poetically uh, raised than try to pass, but then to try to block a voting rights bill through the filibuster. Yes, that's the that that is the emblem of uh, our era. Indeed. So. Um, so that's where we are with the filibuster right now. Um, and now I'm going to ask you to, uh, you like to do things like rank presidents and things like that. Well, I'm going to ask you to handicap this. Do you, do you see the filibuster uh, being either modified or dispensed with in the uh, in near future? Unfortunately, Senator Manchin does not have my number on his speed dial, <laughs> and he's not whispering sweet nothings uh, into my uh, ear. So, um, so truthfully, I'm the wrong person to ask. We need to ask Senator Manchin. One other wrinkle. If the Democrats manage to push through some of these um, reforms, voting rights, which will help them in 2022, maybe D.C. suffrage, uh, or D.C. 
statehood or Puerto Rican statehood, um, which will help them in 2022 and 2024. Um, and if they manage, despite history, to hold on to the House, it's not so easy to do in a president's first two years. Most presidents in their first two years lose House seats in the first um, off-year election. But if they manage to do that, oh, there's a bit of a bonus that they may get because maybe then um, Susan Collins looks at this situation and says, hmm, you know, would I, well, maybe I, I'm a moderate person. I come from actually a, a state that voted for Joe Biden, a blue state, net, net. Um, maybe I can get more done for my constituents if I um, switch uh, as many New England Republicans in the last uh generation have switched from Jim Jeffords um, in the Senate to um, Lincoln Chaffee um, to David Souter on the Supreme Court. Lots of New England Republicans have now functionally become Democrats officially or uh, de facto. Um, So maybe Susan Collins could see her way clear to that. Maybe uh, uh, Senator Murkowski Lisa Murkowski from Alaska might see her way clear to that. Because of certain reforms that Alaska adopted, so-called jungle primary, she's going to make it to the general election no matter what. So she doesn't need to be worried as worried about being primaried from the right and excluded from the ballot. And, and, so, and so, um, so maybe she says, hmm, you know, I'm actually a moderate. Um, there's some things where I agree with the Republicans, but I do agree with the Democrats on some things, and I might be able to get more done if the Democrats actually are the governing party that controls the presidency and the House and the Senate. So, so it's possible um, that um, uh, they might switch, which is another way of saying, by the law of anticipated response, we need to keep our eyes not just on Senator Manchin, but also on Senators Murkowski and Collins. Indeed. So I think that, uh, listeners, you, you now are well-armed to uh, discuss all aspects of the filibuster, and frankly, the argument that Professor Amar put forth uh, about the, these different structural uh, factors in the different branches that show that the nation is not so divided uh, as the congressional makeup might uh, m- might make one think is a, is a powerful argument that I haven't read anywhere as having been written up uh, quite in that way. So I think you're hearing something new here today. And you haven't read it in part, if you haven't read it, maybe some folks have said, I, I bet some folks have, but truthfully, I haven't said it before. And I haven't said it before in my writings, and I have written about this in at least two books, The Constitution Today and America's Unwritten Constitution. I've written at length about the filibuster, but um, I haven't written about this point um, before because actually I didn't think of it before, and I didn't think of it before because no one asked me the question uh, quite as clearly and, uh, um, and powerfully as you asked me the question. So thanks for that, Andy. Thank you. And uh, next week, we'll be be back with more readings from uh, The Words That Made Us, which we're all uh, anticipating eagerly. Now we're in April, so it's, uh, it's only about a month away. Thanks for the plug. Okay.